DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. We're no, joined now by Dr. David Petron, University of Utah Healthcare, and the Utes head team physician, Dr. Petron, good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. Good to have you back on. We had you on a couple weeks ago, and I'm curious, uh, when I read stuff, I, I read that you know we're learning more about coronavirus all the time. How much time do you spend trying to uh, keep up on it, and, and what do you know now that you didn't know last time you were on the radio with us? Uh, I spend a fair amount of time on it. It doesn't really fit in with sports medicine, and so everything's been a learning process since it's all broke loose with uh, with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Um, learning all the time. It's a novel virus, so everybody's learning all the time. Uh, still a lot of unknowns and a lot of challenges. Uh, we met with the Pac-12 yesterday, and... So each, each team has a representative from the Pac-12, and we have some infectious disease specialists involved. And I have to tell you that after that meeting, as opposed to other meetings, there was a little bit more of a sense of pessimism, I think, uh, coming out of that meeting. Yeah, that's what it seems like going on right now in general. Is that obviously because of what is going on that that led to maybe some optimism a week or two ago and has declined into that pessimism, as you say? Yeah, some of it has to do with what's going on in our country as a whole. I mean, you know, a few months ago, COVID wasn't even in the top 75 causes of death in this country, and now it's the number one cause of death. And, um, I mean, it's more remarkable than the 1918 flu pandemic, and numbers are going up, at least in the United States. Worldwide, for a lot of countries, the numbers are going down. But that's one component of it. But really, some of the challenges are, are really within sport itself. Um, and even just, well, let me give you a few examples, and then you guys tell me what you think. You you talk to people all day long about this as well. You probably have as much or more knowledge than I do on a lot of these issues, at least as it pertains to sport. But some of the challenges are really, how do we even define what high risk is in an athlete? So. We're having trouble coming to a consensus with this. So just say somebody tests positive for it on a football team, then who are the high-risk contacts? And how do we define define who they would be and how we isolate them, how we test them, how long they'd be out? There's just a number of challenges. So one way is just to say, okay, you test positive, so anybody that you're near or you room with is also uh, considered high risk. And so on, on a best-case scenario with that is you would test them on day three and day five, and the very best-case scenario is you get the results back within 24 hours. And so everybody that was a high risk for that positive test would be out a minimum of a week. Um, and that's that's kind of best-case scenario. And that's the other another issue is just testing itself. So within the Pac-12, we don't have a one standard test that everybody is doing. There's challenges within each university. So, example, at the University of Utah, we have a lab on campus. So that's an advantage for us. Washington has a lab on campus. Well, Corvallis and Eugene, a little more isolated, they don't have access to that. And they're talking about that their turnaround may be more like 48 hours or longer so then when you start testing an athlete and they turn positive and you're not going to get a result for 48 hours or longer, that even slows the process down on return to play even further. 
The other thing that we know now is that there's some risk if you exercise immediately after testing positive. So somebody who tests positive, the recommendation is really a, a graded return to play, but on the quickest end of that, it would be about a 17-day time period before that athlete would be able to return to play. So part of the problem is we don't have a consensus on a uh, conference-wide level on what testing we're going to do. Um, we don't know for certain how quick the turnaround will be for that testing. I mean, ideally for a football game, we'd want to test, say, on a Thursday night, have the results by Friday morning before somebody has to get on a plane and travel and then um, play the game on Saturday, and then that would be relatively low risk. But that even seems to be difficult because some of these teams can't get the results back that quickly. And so if you start testing somebody on, say, a Monday or a Tuesday and they travel on Friday, um, and then even with the travel itself there's risk uh, on an airplane and and. I mean, the bottom line with all of this is is there's going to be risk uh, with return to play of athletes. It, you can't test your way out of it. It's a little easier on the pro level, where I think uh, the NFL is looking at testing daily or every other day. The NBA, we're testing every other day. Um, and then once they're isolated in the bubble in Orlando, I think that's a little bit more controllable than an athlete that's um, – a college athlete that this isn't their occupation, they're not getting paid for it, and they have want to have a lot of social activities that they want to do, and just a lot more moving parts at a university, I think, than a than a pro team. So we heard, and this is a couple months ago, so people may not be holding on to this position anymore. But we heard we're going. If somebody else can't go, oh well. So for the schools that have. Um, the the testing facilities and the labs on campus, you know, Utah and Washington, is there this thought in the Pac-12 world that they should go and Oregon and Oregon State, if they don't, well, best of luck to you and I hope you can play at some point and we'll play you if you can play when you can play? Yeah, but if you think about that, DJ, that's kind of how this all imploded to begin with, right? It started with Rudy and Donovan and then you remember back in the with the basketball NCAA basketball tournament, it kind of started out with the conference-wide tournaments where they said, well, okay, the women will play. And then, well, no, okay, the men will play, but there won't be fans. Okay, there'll be 50% fans. No, there'll be 20% fans. Uh, this team's pulling out. Okay, then I guess we can't play. And then before you know it, the, all the basketball tournaments are called off. So it just was kind of a domino effect where everything went like that. I. I don't see that a conference unilaterally will be saying that we're going to opt out of, um, of competition this year for whatever sport, but I, but I do see the potential for it starting with one team or one university and then others end up following um, similar to what happened in the past. How are these workouts going now with the players and athletes who've come back to campus? It, so far for the University of Utah, as you know, we don't talk about specific injuries and we don't um, name name the injuries, but I can tell you our testing has gone great. Um, they're, they're working out. The workouts are going well. And if you look at some of these other universities that had problems with this, most of the problems uh, were on the social level, not with the uh, actual workouts themselves at their respective institutions. 
So, DJ, I, I heard you the other day. I can't remember who was on, but they asked a, you asked a question about, I want to get this right, but basically the gist was kind of, well, I mean, if they just stay in their hometowns and they do what they're going to do, they're going to potentially pick up the virus versus going and playing sport and doing what they're going to do, and they may pick up the virus. But And I don't know if he answered your question appropriately, but I think the idea was how does sport change it versus if the athletes are picking this up on a social level. Yeah. I get that right. Do you remember the question? I do. I do. I do remember it. And I do remember that. I don't think the person, I can't even remember who we were talking to, but I don't think the person fully grasped what I was getting at, but it goes back to what you said about it. It's the social that when we see an outbreak at a school, well, then you find out some players went to a club at LSU. There's a party at Texas when it was the Orlando professional women's soccer team, the pride. Well, a bunch of them went to dinner and drinks together. And so it's not the, the weightlifting or the film room or the practice or the game where they're getting it. They're getting it, like you say, in these social situations when they're around each other. Right. And it's almost a, a more controlled setting um, when, they, when they have, um, you know, a, a list of the activities that they should be doing on a almost hour-by-hour, day-to-day basis when they get back to sport. It's really more organized in some ways. Now, there's clustering of athletes, obviously, and there could be potential in dorm rooms and that type of thing. But, um, I mean, there's risk with day-to-day activity in life, too. And so, I, I mean, I, I understood your question when you asked it then, and I think it's, I mean, I agree with you with, with what you're saying, because most of these outbreaks have been more from social interaction rather than what's happening uh, with athletics itself. So do you see a situation, and if we're resuming, and we'll go with football because that's the highest profile and that's up next, to where they basically have some type of, uh, not, I can't use the word quarantine in its purest sense, but some type of quarantine with the staff and the players during the season? Um, well, probably not quarantine, but maybe just isolation with. Yeah, right. I think, I mean, it's it would definitely be an advantage if a coach could convince athletes to stay out of, um, you know, clubs and social situations like that and say, anytime you're in public, you need to be wearing a mask. You need to be um, considerate to your teammates and, and others by, by, you know, just distancing and wearing a mask and doing the right things that way. Um, but you know, these are college kids and they're going to do what they're going to do and you can't control them all hours of the day. But um, if if you could, I mean, I, I think you could still isolate this. If somebody tests positive, you could isolate them and uh, keep them from the rest of the team and continue on. I mean, part of it is you could do it by time element or you could do it by testing. But if you test, you need pretty quick turnaround to get the result of that test. Otherwise, really, you so say you test one person, but they've had contact with several other people, unless you have the results on the other people that they had contact with relatively quickly, it could still spread throughout the team. Part of the problem even is with the testing. Like the gold standard on the test is the deep nasal pharyngeal swab, but to do that test, somebody has to have uh, PPE, which isn't very practical. So now we're looking in sports at other ways to test. For instance, in the NBA, they're doing a anteronasal swab and a, and a pharyngeal swab. But this is, a, it's 
not really any more comfortable than the deep nasopharyngeal swab. So it's uh, like a 15-second swab in each nostril and a swab on the back of the throat, and then it's mixed together and then sent for uh, analysis, and you get the result within 24 hours. But the big advantage of that is you can do that without the person gathering, collecting the sample without having full PPE. Another test is a saliva test where you don't have to have full PPE, but that hasn't been FDA approved yet, but it looks like it's a good test. Um, And so it gets difficult for some of these schools, uh, our school included, to sit there and say we're going to test 120 football players every day when it takes about 15 minutes to test four people. It's just not practical. So part of what we're looking at with testing, too, and plan on doing is testing certain pods on certain days. So one day we may be testing defensive backs and assume that that test on that individual will be similar to the other individuals in that pod, test running backs, test wide receivers, people that are around each other more, and then um, just just try to carry on that way on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's for us to test everybody, you know, I guess pro football is 55 players, but for us to test over 100 football players every day, it's, it's just not practical. So take us back to that meeting. Dr. David Petron joined us, and you were saying that after this meeting and representatives from all the Pac-12 schools, there, there was more pessimism there. What is the – do you come out of it with action items like, okay, what are the things we're going to do this week so the next time we meet we got this info? What's the next thing that you know maybe will provide some more hope or maybe will provide more pessimism and convince everyone to shut it down? But what's, what's the next thing? Well, I think the next step is trying to define – on a conference-wide level, maybe on an NCAA level, what high risk is. Um, because if you define, if one team defines high risk one way and another team defines it another way, there's a, there would definitely be an advantage. So say, say you say anybody that's across the line from a person who tested positive, all those people also have to be considered high risk, and then we need to hold them out and test them on day three and day five and wait for the results. So you could have a fair amount of your team um, out for that competition where, say, another team says, well, high risk we think is just somebody who's uh, in a roommate or um, who's next to them in the locker room. And, and just say it's a fewer number of people that they consider high risk. Well, that would be an advantage for that team, right, because they could just say, well, we don't think they're high risk and they can continue to play. Um, so that that's one of the biggest challenges, and we haven't come up with that yet. Another thing we're looking at, with football anyway, is face shields and also looking at potentially wearing a gaiter with a face shield or some sort of mask with that to try to lower the risk. One of the infectious disease doctors in the meeting yesterday actually felt that basketball is a higher-risk sport because you're up closer and, and breathing more of the same air. And you can't really wear any kind of protective mask um, for basketball. So he thought that was a higher-risk sport. But they're looking at using this kind of full face shield cover, um, which really there hasn't been any research on it yet, but think that it may give some sort of protection in addition to wearing a gaiter, and then that may lower the risk. So, So some of the challenges, we're trying to get consistency on testing from one team to another, being able to get the testing back in a timely manner, and having a consensus on what we dis- what we decide to be a high-risk versus a low-risk person. Now, unless we get consensus on that, I think some of this is really difficult to move forward. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When we get to the point of competition, whether it's on an NCA level or individual le- or conference level, it looks like there's going to be requirements of some form of uniformity. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. So when you guys meet, this information goes back to coaches, this information goes back to ADs. How does this spread? And uh, when we talk to someone in any of those categories at any school, what kind of things should we be asking them? Yeah, no, you're exactly right, DJ. So today there will be a meeting with coaches, and I think athletic directors are part of that meeting as well. And then one of the, the representatives from the meeting yesterday will relay some of um, the discussion points that we had and um, try to try to get some resolution with this. But, you, I mean, just from what I've said, I think you can see that it's not as easy as it seems like it would be on the surface just to say, well, let's, let's, let's play football. Interestingly, the SEC ticket sales are up. Go figure. <laughs> how does that – can you believe – I think our tolerance in this this is just – my opinion, but I think our tolerance in the Pac-12 is not quite that of some of the other conferences. Um, I think the SEC and the Big Ten will try to push this to the limit. The Pac-12, I think, um, may not may not have as much tolerance as some of the other conferences. I don't know what you guys think of that. Yeah, it looks that way. I, I, I'm not asking you to comment individually on what UCLA is doing and all that stuff, but there was a thing last week where players said they wanted a neutral third party. They didn't necessarily trust the coach on this. And my thought, as far as the medical people, isn't that what you're already doing? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put the... As long as the coach doesn't supersede the decisions of the local health department and the medical people involved with the team, then... um, I don't think you need a third party. I mean, that that kind of goes back to just some of decision-making and sport in general. So I guess you could make an analogy to concussion. So in the NFL, they have a neutral person for concussion, kind of feeling like the team's medical staff can't make an objective decision on return to play for concussion. So they have a, they have a neutral person. But in general, I would say my colleagues across the country – Look out for the health and, and well-being of the athlete first and the sport second. But I can understand uh, where some of those student-athletes at UCLA are coming from wanting a, a, a third party. I don't think any of the other schools have asked for that. Uh, I've read that football provides about 80% of the TV revenue value in a, in a contract. You know, the rest is probably men's basketball. And obviously football charters to games. The other sports don't generate the revenue, but they largely travel commercial air. Now, they drive to some games, and there's some charters, certainly for men's basketball. Have you addressed commercial air travel for sports teams, or is that too far down the list as a, as a group? Uh, we're looking at that, and some of our um, lower-risk sports, we plan on testing prior to them traveling commercially and then uh, having them wear masks when they travel commercially um it's not really practical for sports like golf or some of the smaller sports to charter so i think that that becomes difficult so i think a lot of the sports the plan is still to travel commercially football of course is all charter yeah 
And I s- assume that you are strongly in the category that uh, we all should be wearing masks when we're in public. There's absolutely great evidence for that. Yeah, and it. Yeah, I hate that this has become a political issue. It should not be a political issue. We should all be wearing masks when we're out in public. If even if we don't feel like it's doing anything for us, you're you're being kind to those around you because it's shed through droplets and through air. And if you can minimize that, it definitely helps um, decrease the risk. He's Dr. David Petron, University of Utah Healthcare, Utah's head team physician. We appreciate you coming on, and we'll look forward to talking to you again in another couple of weeks, getting an update because uh, everything is new. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys.